Marxism, Leninism, Maoism, Basic Course. Chapter 1, Introduction. Most of us revolutionary activists are, quote, practical, unquote, people. We feel, quote, why bother about ideology and theory and such other things? That is for the scholars and intellectuals. The most important thing is to get on with the job, unquote. The lower-level activists and members feel that it is sufficient that the Central Committee and the Higher Committees do study and provide guidance, and often many members in the Higher Committees also feel that other work is too pressing to, quote, allow, unquote, much time for theory. On the other hand, there are a few others who feel it is necessary to know every work of the great teachers in order to work, quote, properly, unquote. They spend a large amount of time trying to read everything. They also have a tendency to treat everything they read as dogma. It is necessary to avoid both these attitudes in our study. All comrades should give sufficient time and attention to study in order to understand the essence of our ideology, Marxism, Leninism, Maoism, MLM. Rather than knowing by heart a large number of books, it is necessary to understand deeply the essential and basic aspects of our guiding ideology. If we do this and learn to apply it in our day-to-day -day work, we can greatly improve our practice, both as individual activists as well as of the party as a whole. Very often, we understand and analyze the world around us only according to our own limited experiences and therefore arrive at wrong conclusions. A proper understanding of MLM can help us overcome such errors. At other times, a superficial understanding can lead to going by only the letter of certain party decisions and stands and not understanding their essence and spirit. Such mistakes can also be avoided by a deeper grasp of MLM. By our study of MLM, we learn from the positive and negative experiences of world revolution. We learn to absorb the good in it, and we learn to differentiate between the good and the bad in our own practice. We thus learn to recognize, criticize, and fight all types of opportunism. In short, MLM is a must in order to mold our practice in the light of theory. This basic course in MLM is intended to present to activists an understanding of the principal aspects of our ideology. Our ideology is, first and foremost, a quote, practical unquote theory, meant to be implemented and put into practice. The theory itself emerged in the course of numerous class struggles. It is therefore essential to understand the concrete material conditions and social practice through which the great teachers of the proletariat, Marx, Engels, Lenin, Stalin, and Mao, discovered and formulated its basic principles. Thus, this book has been presented by relating the historical process of the growth and development of MLM. The basic concepts have been presented in short by, wherever possible, linking to the socioeconomic conditions, main political events, and class struggles that gave birth to them. In order to understand any particular aspect in detail, more particular study would be necessary. This basic course, however, is meant to provide an essential basis for understanding the dynamic process of the development of our ideology and in what historical conditions and circumstances certain stands and theory came into being. Come, let's begin our study. Chapter 2. What is Marxism-Leninism-Maoism? The party leading the revolution is the Communist Party, and the ideology guiding the thinking and practice of the Communist Party is Marxism-Leninism-Maoism, or MLM. This is known to all of us. However, many of us are not so sure what is exactly meant by Communist ideology, or MLM, and what are its various parts or aspects. 
Quite a few understand it simply as the ideas of Marx, Lenin, and Mao. Such an understanding is incomplete, insufficient, and superficial. What is needed is to go deeper into the matter and understand the internal essence. Let us first therefore try to understand this essence of MLM. At the time when Marx and Engels were first developing and propagating the theory of communism, Engels, in 1847, drafted a booklet called The Principles of Communism. In this, he defined what communism is in the following very simple manner. Quote, communism is the doctrine of the prerequisites for the emancipation of the proletariat, unquote. Thus, Engels, in this very short definition, explains that the essence of communist ideology is to provide the theory regarding what is needed to achieve the ultimate freedom of the working class, the proletariat. This freedom would finally be achieved through the establishment of communist society. Stalin explained the same thing in the following way, quote, Marxism is the science of the laws governing the development of nature and society, the science of the revolution of the oppressed and exploited masses, the science of the victory of socialism in all countries, the science of building a communist society, unquote. Here, Stalin explains the wide scope of Marxism. Firstly, it is a science which provides the answers to questions concerning not only society, but also the whole of nature. Thus, Marxism is an all-encompassing science. Secondly, it is a science regarding revolution. And this revolution is not of the rich, as in earlier bourgeois revolutions of the capitalist class, but of the poor and toiling masses. But of the poor and toiling masses. And thirdly, it is the science of building socialist and communist society. The science is today given the name of Marxism, Leninism, Maoism, after the names of the three teachers who played the greatest role in establishing and developing it, Karl Marx, Vladimir Lenin, and Mao Zedong. Besides these three, we recognize two other great teachers who played a tremendous role, Frederick Engels and Joseph Stalin. Engels was the comrade of Marx, who closely collaborated with him in laying the foundations of Marxism, as well as in advancing it after Marx's death. Stalin defended and developed Marxism-Leninism after Lenin's death. Marxism was first worked out by Marx, with the help of Engels, more than 150 years ago. The principal parts of Marxism are the philosophy of dialectical materialism and the discovery of the materialist conception of history or historical materialism. Marxist political economy, which discovered the laws of motion of capitalism and its contradictions, and the doctrine of surplus value, which uncovered the source of exploitation, and the theory of scientific socialism, based on the doctrine of the class struggle and the outlining of the principles governing the tactics of the class struggle of the proletariat. Leninism is Marxism in the era of imperialism and the proletarian revolution. It was first developed by Lenin around the turn of the century, during the course of the Russian Revolution, while fighting the opportunism of the Second International, and while advancing the international communist movement through the Third International. Leninism, while defending and developing Marxism, made the following significant contributions. The discovery of the laws of motion of capitalism under imperialism, and how they would inevitably lead the imperialist powers to war. The qualitative development of the theory and practice of proletarian revolution during the bourgeois democratic revolution, as well as the socialist revolution. A clear understanding regarding the dictatorship of the proletariat, as well as the first principles regarding socialist construction, providing the theory and direction for the nationality movements and the movements in the colonies, and linking the national liberation movements to the world socialist revolution. The development of the organizational principles of the Leninist party, the new type of party. 
Stalin, while defending and developing Leninism, particularly contributed to the principles and laws governing the period of socialist construction. Maoism is an extension and development of Marxism-Leninism applicable to the present era. It was developed by Mao during the course of the Chinese Revolution, in the process of socialist construction, in the fight against modern revisionism, and particularly during the Great Proletarian Cultural Revolution. Maoism's contributions include the theory of contradictions, the development of the theory of knowledge, and the formulation of the mass line of, quote, from the masses to the masses, unquote. The theory of new democracy, the formulation of the path of revolution for colonies and semi-colonies, and the formulation regarding the three instruments of the revolution, the party, people's army, and the united front, the theory of protracted people's war, and the development of the principles of military warfare, the development of the organizational principles of the proletarian party through the understanding of two-line struggle, rectification campaigns, and criticism and self-criticism, the development of the political economy of socialism on the basis of the Soviet and Chinese experience, and the dialectical understanding of the process of socialist construction as the correct handling of contradictions in the process of transition to socialism. And finally, and most importantly, the theory and practice of continuing revolution under the dictatorship of the proletariat to consolidate socialism, combat modern revisionism, and prevent the restoration of capitalism and its concrete expression in the great proletarian cultural revolution. Marxism, Leninism, and Maoism are thus not separate ideologies, but represent the constant growth and advancement of one and the same ideology. We shall in the following pages try to trace the story of the process of its development. While doing this, we shall also try to understand the essence of its various parts and aspects that have been listed above. The list may appear to be long and difficult, but it needs not be so. If we concentrate and try to understand the basic essence of each aspect within its historical context, we will be able to grasp a lot. Chapter 3. Socioeconomic Conditions Leading to the Birth of Marxism As we will see later, Marxism teaches us that any ideas or theory are always the product of some material conditions. Whenever new material conditions come into being, new ideas and theories are bound to emerge too. This same truth also applies to Marxism itself. Thus, in order to understand Marxism better, we should try to know the material conditions, i.e. the socio-economic conditions, within which Marx and Engels first gave birth to Marxism. Marxism was established over 150 years ago during the 1840s. It was established first in Europe, which at that time dominated the whole world economically, politically, and militarily. This world domination was such that almost all earlier advanced civilizations like India, China, Persia had been subordinated to it. Marx and Engels were born and lived in some of the most economically advanced parts of Europe while developing the ideas of Marxism. They observed, participated in, and were influenced by all the major political events of that time. Thus, in order to understand how Marxism was born, we first have to take a look at the Europe of that time and see the principal factors in the socio-economic situation then. 1. The most important factor was the Industrial Revolution, which lasted from approximately 1760 to 1830, and, though it was centered in England, influenced the whole world. The Industrial Revolution was named as such because it was during those 70 years that the world first saw an explosive and revolutionary upsurge in industrial development. It was at this time that modern large factories were set up and grew at a very rapid pace, particularly in England. 
Along with this was the tremendous expansion of the world market, which sent English manufactured goods to all parts of the world. Though other countries like France, Holland, and parts of Germany and the USA also set up large factories, this period was heavily dominated by England. Its domination was such that it came to be called, quote, the workshop of the world, unquote, which supplied manufactured goods to all countries. The Industrial Revolution transformed the capitalist class. This class was economically not so strong earlier and was a middle class. It was called the bourgeoisie because bourgeois in French means middle class. But with the Industrial Revolution, this middle class was transformed into a class of industrial millionaires, the modern industrial bourgeoisie. The untold riches of this new class gave it the strength to challenge the feudal classes more powerfully, which were, until then, still the ruling classes. Alongside the modern industrial bourgeoisie, the Industrial Revolution also gave birth to another class, the modern industrial working class, or proletariat. This class consisted of workers working together by the thousands in large factories, was also far different from the earlier workers working in small groups and tiny workshops. The modern proletarians possessed nothing else except their laboring power, and had a strength and confidence not known to earlier generations of workers and toilers. This strength came from their contact with modern industry, their discipline learned from the factory system, and their superior organization due to their large numbers assembled together in single factories, under one roof. Their position within society made them potentially the most revolutionary force in history. 2. The other important factor was that which dominated the political situation in Europe at the time. It was the spate of the bourgeois democratic revolutions, led by the rising capitalist class, of which the most important was the French Revolution of 1789. The French Revolution not only brought about very radical changes in France, it also led to the Napoleonic Wars where the armies of the French bourgeoisie conquered almost the whole of Europe and introduced bourgeois reforms abolishing feudalism wherever they went. They thus dealt a death blow to the kings and old feudal classes. Though the French armies were later defeated, the old ruling classes could never recover their old position. The modern bourgeoisie continued its revolutionary wave with numerous other bourgeois revolutions, which resulted in the conclusive defeat of the feudal classes and the victory of capitalism as a world system. Thus, at both the economic and political levels, the period Marxism birth was a period of great advances and victories for the capitalist class, when it was conclusively establishing its rule in the most advanced and dominant countries of the world. 3. Though this was the period of the greatest advancement of the bourgeoisie, the principal factor that gave birth to Marxism during this period was the rise of working-class consciousness and proletarian organizations and movements, thus signaling the emergence of the proletariat as an independent and self-conscious force. This rise of class-conscious proletariat first took place in England and France. This was primarily because of the early spread of modern industry in those two countries. The spread of modern industry, though it brought great wealth to the bourgeoisie, meant at the same time that the most inhumane working and living conditions for the working class. Almost three-quarters of the workforce were composed of women and children because they provided cheaper and more easily controlled workers for the capitalists. Children from the age of six were forced to work 14 to 16 hours in the spinning mills. As the bourgeoisie amassed greater and greater wealth, the workers fell into greater and greater misery. While the cloth mill owners multiplied their capital many times over, their weavers' wages reduced to one-eighth of what they earlier obtained. 
Thus, the conditions of the proletariat were such that rebellion was not merely possible, but almost compulsory. The first of such outbursts were spontaneous, without clear direction. An example was the machine-breaking agitation of 1810-11 through 11 in England, where groups of weavers attacked the textile mills and smashed whatever machinery they could lay their hands on. This was their method of protesting against the modern industry that was destroying their very livelihood. Such protests, having no clear direction and being severely repressed, quickly died out. What followed was the spread and growth of the labor movement and labor organizations that provided answers and direction to the fighting proletariat. Earlier unions, which had been restricted to skilled workers, started from 1818 uniting all laboring men together in what were then called, quote, general trades, unquote, unions. As these unions in England started growing, a movement to start a national-level union started building up. This was formed, and by 1833-34, reached a membership of 500,000. Along with the unions, workers also started organizing themselves in cooperatives and mutual benefit societies. In other countries where unions were largely banned, these were the main forms of organizations of the working class, which also grew in numbers and strength. As the workers' organizations started growing, in 1837 the workers in Britain launched the Chartist movement, demanding electoral rights for workers. This was the first broad, truly mass and politically organized proletarian revolutionary movement. It used the method of mass petitions to parliament, somewhat similar to the signature campaigns sometimes organized today. These petitions gathered up to 5 million signatures. Some Chartist demonstrations had 350,000 participants, showing the organized strength of the working class. However, as the movement grew in strength and militancy, it faced severe repression and was suppressed by 1850. During the early 1840s, while Engels was staying in Manchester in England, he was in close contact with revolutionary Chartist leaders as well as its weekly, the Northern Star, and was influenced by the Chartist movement. The growing militancy of the workers' movement in this period also often led to the first worker uprisings, which were brutally suppressed. Examples of these were the uprisings in London in 1816 and Manchester in 1819, the uprisings of the silk workers of Lyon, France in 1831 and 1834, and the uprising of the handloom linen weavers of Silesia in Prussian Germany, today part of Poland, in 1844. The last-named struggle had a strong impact throughout Germany as well as on the young Marx. Thus, by the time of the 1840s, the proletarian movement was growing rapidly in strength and intensity in many industrial countries. However, it was still very weak and in no position yet to pose a threat to either the dominant big bourgeoisie or the old feudal ruling classes. Nevertheless, the emergence of the proletariat as an independent class force was an event of world historical significance. The proletariat coming into material existence also meant at the same time the birth of the ideas representing this new revolutionary class. Many ideas and theories claiming to represent working class interests thus came into being. Marxism, when it was first formulated in the 1840s, was only one among them. However, though many theories had emerged from the same economic conditions, Marxism alone provided the tools to properly understand those conditions and also to change them. Therefore, in the years to come, it was Marxism alone that would prove to be the true proletarian ideology. Chapter 4. The Early Lives of Marx and Engels Until They Became Marxists Obviously, nobody can be born a Marxist, not even Marx. 
There has to be a process through which ideas and views are developed and formulated and take a basic shape, which can be called an ideology. Naturally, Marx and Engels had to go through such a process too before they came to discover, and themselves, grasp the basic truths of what we know today as Marxism. This process of thought was naturally determined to a great extent by the concrete experiences that both of them went through. In order, therefore, to understand this in some depth, let us briefly look at the early life experiences of these two great teachers. Karl Marx was born on the 5th of May, 1818, in the town of Trier, in what was then called Rhenish Prussia, and which is today part of Germany. His father, Heinrich Marx, was one of the top lawyers of the town. The family was well-to-do and cultured, but not revolutionary. Both of Marx's parents came from a long line of Jewish priests. Thus, though they were economically well-off, they had to face social discrimination in the anti-Jew atmosphere of Prussia. In 1816, Marx's father was forced to convert to Christianity because the Prussian government enacted a rule stopping Jews from practicing law. Similarly, in 1824, another Prussian law was passed to prevent non-Christians from being admitted to public schools. To overcome this, Heinrich Marx was forced to baptize his son Karl, along with all of his brothers and sisters. Thus, though he was no believer in organized religion, Marx's father was forced to adopt a new faith, just in order to pursue his profession and give his children a good education. Marx's hometown, Trier, is the oldest town in Germany, which for many centuries had been the residence of Roman emperors and later the seat of Catholic bishops, with a religious administration for the town and surrounding area. In August 1794, the French armies captured the town, instituted a civil administration, and brought in the ideas and institutions of the French Revolution. The town only went back into the hands of the Prussian king after the defeat of France's Napoleon in 1815. Thus, during the time of Marx's birth and youth, it still carried the definite impact of 21 years of French revolutionary ideas. Trier was a small town, similar in size to our smaller Toluca towns, with a population then of around 12,000. It was principally a market town for the surrounding area, which for centuries had been a famous wine-growing area. Its population was composed of occupations typical to a, quote, service, unquote, town, civil servants, priests, small merchants, craftsmen, etc. It had remained untouched by the Industrial Revolution and was thus economically relatively backward. During Marx's youth, it also had a high degree of poverty. Official statistics in 1830 gave an unemployment figure of one in every four, though the actual figures must have been much higher. Beggars and prostitutes were common, and the figures of petty crimes like stealing were extremely high. Thus, Marx from a very young age was witness to the misery of the poorer, laboring classes. After attending elementary school, Marx entered the Friedrich Wilhelm Gymnasium Secondary School in 1831, from which he graduated in 1835. Within three weeks, he was sent for further studies at the law school of the university 40 miles away from Trier, in the city of Bonn, an important center which is today the joint capital of Germany. Marx, with a desire to learn as much as possible, immediately registered in nine courses besides law, including poetry, literature, art, etc. He was at first regular at lectures, but gradually lost interest, particularly in the law lectures, which he found dry and unsatisfying. He reduced his courses first to six and then to four. He decided to study on his own and soon got involved in the stormy life of the students whom he soon became a leader. Being deeply interested in writing poetry, 
He also joined the Potenbund, a circle of young writers founded by revolutionary students. In the constant struggle between the sons of the feudal nobles and the bourgeoisie, he soon became a leader of the bourgeois group. He was often involved in fistfights and sometimes in sword duels. He carried a stiletto knife, somewhat similar to our Gupti knives, for which he was once arrested and had a police charge put on him. He was also sentenced to one day in the university student prison on charges of, quote, nightly uproarious disturbances of the peace and drunkenness, unquote. Marx, in one sword duel, was even injured on his right eyebrow. This led his father to withdrawing him from Bonn University and bringing him back to Trier in August 1836. While he was in Trier, he got secretly engaged to Jenny von Westphalen, the daughter of Baron von Westphalen, a nobleman and senior Prussian government official. Jenny, who was four years older than him, and Marx were childhood loves who had decided to get married while Marx was still in school. They now got engaged with the approval of Marx's parents, but without Jenny's parents' approval, which was only obtained in 1837. In October 1836, Marx moved to the University of Berlin, which was in the capital of Prussia. The university was much larger than Bonn, and was renowned as a major center of learning. After registering for his university courses, Marx immediately jumped into a storm of work. He stayed up night after night, eating irregularly, smoking heavily, reading heavy books, and filling up notebooks. Instead of formal classes, Marx pursued his studies on his own. Working at a tremendous pace, he moved from law to philosophy to poetry to art and then to writing plays and stories, and then back to philosophy and poetry. His overwork had a bad effect on his health, particularly his smoking affected his lungs, and he was sometimes forced to take a break. But he always went back to his excessive work habits, reading up everything from the ancient to the latest works of scientists and philosophers. His bent was towards philosophy, always trying to find universal meaning, always searching for the absolute in principles, definitions, and concepts. During his second year at the university, he joined a group of philosophy students and teachers called the Young Hegelians. They were followers of the famous German philosopher Friedrich Hegel, who had taught at Berlin University and died in 1830. They tried to give a radical interpretation of Hegel's philosophy, and for this they were sometimes called left Hegelians. One of Marx's friends in this group, its intellectual leader, was a professor called Bruno Bauer, who was a militant atheist who constantly attacked the church's teachings. Such attacks, along with the radical political views of the young Hegelians, made them a target of the Prussian authorities. Thus, when Marx completed his doctoral thesis, he could not obtain his degree from the Berlin University, which was dominated by reactionary appointees of the Prussian government. After completing his studies in Berlin, he submitted his thesis and obtained his PhD in April 1841 from the liberal-leaning University of Jena that was outside Prussian control. After obtaining his degree, he had hoped to become a lecturer at Bonn University, where Bruno Bauer had transferred to in 1839. But Bauer himself was in trouble because of the students' disturbances his anti-religion lectures were causing. Finally, the king himself ordered the removal of Bauer from Bonn University. This meant the end of Bauer's teaching career as well as any hope of a teaching job for Marx. Marx started concentrating on journalism, which he had already started immediately after leaving university. This also helped him to participate more thoroughly in the rapidly growing radical democratic opposition movement, then developing in his Rhineland province and the neighboring province of Westphalia. These provinces, which had experienced the liberating influence of the French anti-feudal reforms, were major centers of opposition to the Prussian king. Industrialization had also led to the growth of the bourgeoisie, particularly in Cologne, the richest city of the Rhineland. 
This meant strong support for this radical opposition movement by the industrialists, who were fed up with the excessive controls of the feudals. Marx first started writing for, and then in October 1842, became the chief editor of the Rheinische Zeitung, a daily newspaper supported by such industrialists. In Marx's hands, the newspaper soon became a fighter for radical democratic rights. This, however, brought Marx into constant conflict with the Prussian censors who were very repressive. Finally, when the paper published a criticism of the Russian Tsar's despotism, the Tsar himself brought pressure on the Prussian king to take action. The paper was banned and had to be closed down in March 1843. Marx then started involving himself in a plan to bring out a new journal, the German-French yearbooks. From 1841 to 1843, Marx was deeply involved in the stormy political life of that period. However, he was basically a radical democrat and did not at the time hold communist views. His major transformation of the level of philosophy during this period was in 1841 after reading the book The Essence of Christianity by Ludwig Feuerbach, which presented a criticism of religion from the standpoint of materialism. This book played a major role in shifting Marx's ideas from the idealism of the young Hegelian group to materialism. Another philosophical work of 1841, The European Triarchy that influenced Marx, was the attempt by his friend, Moses Hess, to develop a communist philosophy by combining French socialist and left Hegelian ideas. However, at the time, Marx yet had only a limited knowledge of the ideas of the socialists and communists. His first contact was in 1842, when he read with interest the works of many of the leading French socialist theorists. He was, however, not converted to communism or socialism by these readings. This change came about more through his contact with working-class communist groups and study of political economy, both of which took place mainly after moving to Paris at the end of 1843. Seven years after their engagement, Marx and Jenny were married in June 1843. They had a short honeymoon in Switzerland, during which Marx wrote a booklet where he presented his initial criticisms of Hegel. After the honeymoon, he started the study and preparations for moving to Paris, from where the earlier mentioned German-French yearbooks was to be launched. This move to Paris was planned in order to avoid the Prussian censors. However, though the journal was planned as a monthly, it collapsed after only one issue that came out in February 1844. Marx's period in Paris was however marked by very significant new experiences. Of the greatest importance was direct contact with the various socialist and communist groups, of which Paris was a hot center. Besides meeting a large number of theoreticians and revolutionaries, Marx benefited greatly by regular contact with the many working-class revolutionaries in Paris. At the same time, Marx started a study of political economy, in which he read most of the works of the famous English economists. The revolutionary contacts and further study had their impact. These were reflected in Marx's writings. The single issue of the yearbooks was of crucial importance because it contained Marx's first broad generalization of a Marxist materialist understanding of history that was contained in an article criticizing Hegel's philosophy. It was in this article that Marx made the highly important formulation regarding the historical role of the proletariat. He also here made his famous formulation that religion is the opium of the people. The same issue also contained an article by Engels on political economy, which also gave a materialist understanding regarding the development of modern capitalism. It was Marx's interest in Engels' writings that led to their meeting in Paris between August 28th and September 6th, 1844. This turned out to be an historic meeting that helped the two great thinkers to clarify their ideas and lay the first foundations of Marxism. 
though they had both independently come to similar conclusions earlier, this meeting helped them to achieve complete theoretical agreement. It was at this meeting that they more clearly came to an understanding regarding the materialist conception of history, which was the cornerstone of Marx's theory. Frederick Engels was born on November 28, 1820, in the textile town of Barman in the Rhine province of Prussia. His father was the wealthy owner of a cotton spinning mill, and was a fiercely religious Protestant Christian with a reactionary political outlook. Barman, like Marx's Trier, also belonged to the part of Prussia, which had seen 20 years of French conquest. It thus also had progressive influences on it. However, its main characteristic was that it was one of the biggest Rhenish industrial centers. Thus, Engels, from a very early age, saw the severe poverty and exploitation of the working class. To survive against factory competition, craftsmen were forced to work from morning to night. Often they tried to drown their sorrows in drink. Child labor and occupational lung diseases were rampant. Engels attended the Barman Town School until the age of 14. He was then sent to the secondary school at the neighboring town of Elberfeld. Today, both Barman and Elberfeld are merged into one town. This school had the reputation of being one of the best in Prussia. He was an intelligent student with an early flair for learning languages. He was also part of a poetry circle among the students and wrote his own poetry and short stories. He was planning to study economy and law, but his father was more interested in making his eldest son learn the family business. At the age of 17, he was suddenly removed from school and made to join as an apprentice in his father's office. Though this was the end of Engel's formal schooling, he continued to use his free time to study history, philosophy, literature, and linguistics, and to write poetry, which he was attracted to. The next year, in July 1838, Engels was sent to work as a clerk in a large trading firm in the large port city of Bremen. The big city atmosphere brought Engels in contact with foreign literature and the press. In his leisure time, he started reading fiction and political books. He continued learning new languages and besides German got some knowledge of Latin, Greek, Italian, Spanish, Portuguese, French, English, Dutch, etc. This ability to learn languages continued throughout Engels' life during which he learned to be quite fluent in over 20 languages, including Persian and Arabic. Also in Bremen, Engels became a good horseman, swimmer, swordsman, and ice skater. While at school, Engels had been a fighter against bureaucracy. Now as a grown youth, he was attracted to the radical democratic ideas of the bourgeois democratic revolution, then taking shape in Germany. The first group he was attracted towards was the young German literary group that stood for radical political views. He soon started writing for a journal being published by them from the port city of Hamburg, not far from Bremen. He wrote two articles on the situation in his home district. He exposed the severe exploitation of the workers in Barman and Elberfeld, the diseases they suffered, and the fact that half the children of the town were deprived of school and forced to work in the factories. He particularly attacked the hollowness of the religiosity of the exploitative industrialists, which included his own father. Towards the end of 1839, he started a study of Hegel, whose philosophy he tried to link with his own radical democratic beliefs. However, he only made progress in this when he finished his clerkship in Bremen in 1841, and after a few months' gap, moved to Berlin for one year's compulsory military service. While in military service, he joined Berlin University as an external student and did a course in philosophy. He then became closely connected with the young Hegelian group of which Marx had been a part. He, like Marx, was also influenced greatly by the materialist views in Feuerbach's book that came out in that year. 
Engels' writings now started to have some materialist aspects. The main thing he always stressed was political action. This was what made him split in 1842 from his earlier young German group, which he felt restricted itself only to empty literary debate. However, he continued to be strongly linked with the young Hegelians, particularly with Bruno Bauer and his brother. It was this closeness of angles with the Bowers that prevented a friendship with Marx when they met for the first time in November 1842. Engels had finished his military service at that time, and was on his way from his hometown to join as a clerk in his father's business in Manchester, England. On the way, he visited Marx at the newspaper office in Cologne, where Marx was the chief editor. Marx by then had however started criticizing the young Hegelians, and particularly the Bowers, for concentrating their propaganda too much on religion rather than politics. Hence, Marx and Engels, having different political affiliations, could not become close at this, their first meeting. It was Engels' experiences in England that made him a communist. He developed very close links with the workers of Manchester, as well as the leaders of the revolutionary workers in the Chartist movement. Manchester was the main center of the world's modern textile industry, and soon Engels undertook an in-depth study of the working and living conditions of its workers. He regularly visited the working-class areas to gain direct knowledge. In this process, a love grew between him and Mary Burns, a young Irish factory worker, who would later become his companion and wife. Besides collecting material for his future book on the conditions of the working class in England, Engels came to understand the revolutionary potential of the proletariat. His regular participation in the movement convinced him that the working class was not merely a suffering class, but a fighting class, whose revolutionary actions would build the future. Besides working-class contact, Engels also made a deep study of the various socialist and communist theories, and even met many of the French and German leaders and writers who had formulated them. Though he did not adopt any of these theories, he made an analysis of their positive and negative points. At the same time, he started a deep study of bourgeois political economy. This was in order to help him analyze the economic relations of society, which he had started feeling was the basis of all social change. The initial results of his study he put down in his article that was published by Marx and his journal published from Paris. As we mentioned earlier, this led to correspondence between Marx and Engels and their historic meeting in 1844. Engels was on his way back from Manchester to his hometown Barman when he stopped on the way to meet Marx who was staying in Paris. Their discussions helped Marx to better formulate the materialist understanding of history in which they had both started believing. They also, at this meeting, started work on their first joint book, which was an attack on Bruno Bauer and the young Hegelian group, to which they had both previously belonged. Engels spent the next eight months doing intensive communist propaganda and organizational work in Germany. During this period, he was in constant revolt against his father, who opposed his communist work and tried to get him to work in his factory. After just two weeks at his father's office, Engels rejected it completely and left Barman to join Marx. Marx, by that time, had again become the target of feudal authorities. The Prussian king had brought pressure on the French king, who expelled Marx from Paris. Marx was forced to move to Brussels in Belgium along with his wife and eight-month-old child. This is where Engels came and set up house right next to Marx's house. Marx, in the meantime, had done deep work and had developed the main features of the New World Outlook, which they had discussed at their earlier meeting. In Brussels, both Marx and Engels started intensive joint work. This was, as Engels said, to develop the new outlook in all possible directions. The result was the historic book, The German Ideology, which only got published almost a hundred years later. 
The main purpose this book served at that time was for the two great thinkers to clarify their old understanding and set up the pillars of the New World Outlook, which later came to be known as Marxism. Marx and Engels had become Marxists. Chapter 5. The Three Sources of Marxism From the earlier account of the early life of Marx and Engels, it is clear that they were both extraordinary and brilliant men. However, it is also clear that Marxism was not some invention that suddenly emerged from the thoughts of these magnificent brains. The socio-economic changes of that time provided the basis for the emergence of the true proletarian ideology. The actual content of the form of that ideology, however, was the product of the struggles waged in the most important fields of thought at that time. Marx and Engels being deep intellectuals had a wide and deep grasp of the latest development of thought in the most advanced countries of the period. They, thus, could stand on the shoulders of great thinkers before them, absorbing whatever was good and rejecting what was wrong in them. And it was thus that they built the structure and content of Marxism. Let us see where the main fields of thoughts on which they base their ideas. Thus, we can also understand the main sources of Marxism. 1. The first source of Marxist thought was German classical philosophy. Any ideology has to have its grounding in some philosophy, and both Marx and Engels, as we have seen, had a strong base in German classical philosophy. German philosophy had, during the period 1760 to 1830, grown to become the most influential school in European philosophy. It had its base in the German middle classes. This class was intellectually very advanced, but had not developed the political strength to make revolution or the economic resources to make an industrial revolution. This is what probably inclined them towards elaborate systems of thought. However, this class, having many civil servants, had many contradictory aspects. It sometimes leaned to the industrial bourgeoisie and the proletariat on the one side, and sometimes to the feudal classes on the other. This was reflected in German philosophy having both a progressive as well as an anti-progressive aspect. This was particularly seen in Hegel's philosophy upon which Marx and Engels largely based themselves. They therefore rejected all the anti-progressive aspects that upheld the existing feudal society and developed upon the progressive and revolutionary parts to lay the foundations of Marxist philosophy. 2. English political economy was the second important source of Marxism. As England was the center of the Industrial Revolution, it was only natural that the study of the economy and its laws should reach its peak in this country. It was a new field of study, which basically started with the growth of modern capitalism. It had its firm basis in the modern industrial bourgeoisie and played the role of justifying and glorifying capitalism. It also provided the intellectual arguments for the rising bourgeoisie and its struggles with the feudals. In England, its period started with the publication in 1776 of the world-famous book, The Wealth of Nations, by Adam Smith. He basically argued that if capitalism were given the fullest freedom to grow, it would lead to the greatest progress of humanity. He thus provided the argument for the reduction of controls of any sort by the feudals on the capitalist class. David Ricardo was another famous classical economist who played a crucial role in the battles of the bourgeoisie with the landlords. He was the one who pointed out that as capitalism progressed, the average rate of profit of the capitalists fell. His very significant discovery was the development of the labor theory of value, which showed that all economic value is created by labor. Other later economists analyzed the causes of economic crisis under capitalism. English political economy basically served the interests of the industrial bourgeoisie. It therefore played a revolutionary role against the feudal classes. However, the economists very often did not carry forward their analysis beyond the point where it began to hurt bourgeois class interests. 
Thus, for example, Ricardo, though he developed the labor theory of value, did not expose the exploitation of labor by the capitalist class. This was done by Marx. He took the work of the English economists beyond the limits of the capitalist class and drew the necessary revolutionary conclusions from them. It was thus that Marx developed the principles of Marxist political economy. 3. The third source of Marxism was the various socialist theories, which mainly originated from France. These theories represented the hopes and aims of the newly emerging proletariat class. They were both a reflection of, as well as a protest against, capitalist exploitation and oppression of the working class. France at that time was the main center for revolutionary groups and revolutionary theory, which inspired the whole of Europe. It was therefore natural that socialist theories too mainly came out of France. Most of these theories had major defects, as they were not based on a proper scientific analysis of society. Nevertheless, they represented a break with the individualism, self-interest, and competition of bourgeois revolutionary theory. They also pointed the way forward for the proletariat from capitalist society. Marx thus made a study of these theories of socialism and communism before formulating the Marxist principles of scientific socialism. While in Paris, he spent a considerable amount of time with the leaders and members of the numerous French revolutionary and socialist groups. Marx took what was best in socialism and gave it the scientific basis of the doctrine of class struggle. He thus developed the principles of Marxist scientific socialism. This then is the story of how Marxism emerged from the three great sources of ideas in then the most advanced countries of the world. The three sources of Marxism, German philosophy, English political economy, and French socialist theories, corresponded to the three main component parts of the new ideology, Marxist philosophy of dialectical materialism, Marxist political economy, and Marxist theory of scientific socialism. In the following pages, we will try to understand the essence of each of these parts. Chapter 6, The Basic Formulations of Marxist Philosophy, Dialectical and Historical Materialism. As we have repeatedly seen earlier, Marx and Engels always insisted that all philosophy should be practical and linked to the real world. This was expressed in the most clear manner by Marx in his famous saying, quote, The philosophers have always interpreted the world in various ways. The point, however, is to change it, unquote. By this, Marx meant that he did not want to become a philosopher like Arishis and Moonies, sitting on some mountain and meditating regarding supernatural things. He did not see much point in thinking and contemplation unless it was linked to the practical world. His basic quest was to try to understand how the world was changing and thus to participate in actual practice and change today's world and society. He was thus interested in a philosophy that would be applied in social practice. In order to do this, Marx had to take a stand with regards to the basic division in all philosophy, the division between idealism and materialism. This division is regarding the basic question as to which is primary, spirit or nature. Those who take the stand that spirit is primary belong to the camp of idealism, whereas those who take the stand that nature is primary belong to the camp of materialism. Idealism is always connected in one way or another to religion. Being men of practice who were absolutely opposed to religious beliefs, it was but natural that Marx and Engels established Marxist philosophy firmly in the camp of materialism. In doing so, they were definitely influenced and aided by the writings of Feuerbach and other materialist philosophers of that time. However, these philosophers were mechanical materialists who understood nature and society to be like a machine, turning round and round without any development or real change. Marx rejected mechanical materialism because it did not bring any understanding of historical change and development. 
For this, Marx had to turn to dialectics, which is the science of the general laws of motion. The essence of dialectics is that it understands things and their interconnections and contradictions. Dialectics thus was able to provide the science of development that Marx knew was necessary to change the world. At that time, Hegel's philosophy and laws of dialectics, which Marx studied deeply, were the most advanced in Europe. But Hegel had developed his philosophical laws in an idealist way by only making them applicable to the field of thought. He belonged to the camp of idealism and refused to recognize that nature and material, social being, are primary, and spirit and ideas are secondary. He thus did not accept that his system of thought itself was a product of the development of human society in a definite stage. He refused to understand that his laws of thought were themselves reflections of the laws of nature and society. Thus, as Marx said, Hegel's dialectics, by being idealist, was standing on its head, meaning it was absurd and illogical. Marx turned Hegel's dialectics the right side up, meaning he made it rational, by putting it on the basis of materialism. Marx took Hegel's dialectical laws and gave them the approach of materialist philosophy. He thus made Hegel's laws of thought also into laws of nature and society. He thus formulated dialectical materialism, which is the essence of Marx's philosophy. By giving dialectics a rational and materialist basis, Marx changed it into a philosophy of revolution. Marx and Engels applied dialectical materialism to the study of society and history, and thus discovered the materialist conception of history. The materialist conception of history was a new and revolutionary way of understanding society and social change. It explained the basis of social changes and political revolutions, not as an invention of some brilliant men's minds, but as the product of the process within society. It showed all revolutionaries that the path to social change lay in understanding society and formulating the ideas to bring about change accordingly. The starting point of the materialist conception of history is the level of development of the material productive forces, i.e. tools, machinery, skills, etc. Marx says that according to the stage and development of the productive forces, we get definite relations of production, i.e. relations of ownership and control, over the means of production. Thus, for example, backward productive forces like the wooden plow and wind, hand and animal operated mills, give us feudal relations. Modern productive forces like tractors, harvesters, etc., when they are widespread, give rise to capitalist relations of production. These relations of production constitute the economic structure of society, or the economic base of society. On top of the economic base of society arises a legal and political superstructure with definite forms of social consciousness. Further, Marx says that it is the mode of production, consisting of the productive forces and relations of production, that conditions the social, political, and intellectual life in general. Thus, for example, the feudal mode of production gives rise to a very severe oppression of women and lower castes, and a very undemocratic political system. The capitalist mode of production, on the other hand, reduces social oppression and brings some bourgeois democratic rights. At a certain stage in the development of the productive forces, they come into conflict with the existing relations of production. These old relations of production start preventing the development of the productive forces. Unless these production relations are changed, the productive forces cannot develop. This period when the relations of production start acting as chains on the development of the productive forces is the beginning of the epoch of social revolution. Revolution is needed to change the relations of production, i.e. the relation between the various classes in society. Once this happens, and the relations of production or property relations are broken, 
i.e. the economic basis changed, then the change in the whole superstructure follows quite quickly. This materialist conception of history was the first great discovery of Marx, which he accomplished in 1844-45. through 45. It was the foundation on which the other great pillars of Marxist theory were built. In later years, Marx and Engels and the other Marxist teachers further developed Marxist philosophy. However, its essence remained the basic principles of dialectical and historical materialism described above. Chapter 7 the struggle against utopian socialism and the establishment of scientific socialism. Utopian socialism is the term used to describe the main trends of pre-Marxist socialism, which arose and became prominent in the first half of the 19th century. The terms, quote, utopians, unquote, derive from the idea of utopia, which is supposed to be a state of things where everything is perfect, and, quote, socialist, unquote, first became popular in the 1830s. They were used to describe a group of thinkers who developed theories to transform society on a more egalitarian basis, by removing individualism, selfishness, and competitiveness in human nature. Many of these thinkers or their followers tried to implement their theories by setting up ideal communities where all the members worked, lived, and shared the fruits of their labor on a cooperative basis. They believed that such ideal communities would provide the example that would then be followed by the rest of society. They thus did not rely on the actual processes in society for building their schemes of socialism. Rather, they thought that the rationality of their plans and ideas itself was sufficient to convince people and change society. Utopian socialism was first and foremost a reaction to the oppression and exploitation of the working class under capitalism. The working people had fought bitterly for the overthrow of feudalism. However, the bourgeoisie slogans of freedom, equality, and fraternity had only meant freedom for the capitalist class and intensified exploitation of the workers. The various socialist doctrines arose as a result of the emerging class contradictions between the capitalist and workers, and as protests against exploitation. They attempted to build a system that would provide justice to the toilers. The anarchy of capitalist production was another cause for the new socialist theories. The utopian socialists attempted to build rational systems that would provide for the needs of humankind in an orderly and harmonious fashion. Some of them even tried to convince capitalist and government officials that their socialist systems were much more rational, planned, and therefore desirable than the existing capitalist system. They even thus attempted to get funds from the rich for their projects. The main defect of pre-Marxist socialist doctrines was that they did not have a real basis in the class contradictions and class struggles unfolding in society. Though their ideas were themselves the product of the class contradictions within society, the utopian socialists did not realize that it was absolutely necessary to wage class struggle in order to achieve socialism. Though their ideas were in reality a reflection of the aspirations of the infant proletariat, the utopian socialists did not recognize the central importance of the revolutionary role of the proletariat in bringing about socialism. When Marx and Engels came into contact with the socialist and communist groups, they started trying to convince the followers of the utopian socialist theories of the incorrectness of their ideas. They participated intensively in the debates in the various revolutionary and working-class groups where these theories and ideas were being discussed. Their main aim was to give a scientific basis to socialist theory. For this, they had to expose the defects and wrong understanding of the earlier socialists and place socialism on the sound basis of the Marxist theory of class struggle. As Marx himself pointed out, the theory of class struggle was not something new that he invented. In fact, the earlier socialist and even bourgeois writers were quite conscious about it and wrote about classes and class struggle. 
However, the essential difference of the Marxist theory of class struggle is that it showed how class struggle led inevitably to socialism and communism. Firstly, Marx showed that the classes were not something that always existed in human society. He showed that there was a long period in human history where there were no classes at all, i.e. during primitive communism. There would also be a period in the future when there would again be no classes. Secondly, Marx particularly analyzed the present-day class struggle between the bourgeoisie and the proletariat and showed how this class struggle would inevitably lead to revolution by the workers and the establishment of the dictatorship of the proletariat, i.e. socialism. Thirdly, Marx pointed out that the dictatorship of the proletariat was itself a period of transition to a new society. The proletariat could only develop by destroying itself as a class, by abolishing all classes, and establishing a classless society, i.e. communism. It is this theory of class struggle that Marx and Engels developed, propagated, and brought into practice throughout their lives. It is this theory of class struggle that Marx and Engels developed, propagated, and brought into practice throughout their lives. It is this Marxist theory of class struggle that converted socialism into a science which laid the basis for scientific socialism. With this, socialism was no longer to be seen as the product of some brilliant mind, but rather the necessary outcome of the struggle between two historically developed classes, the proletariat and the bourgeoisie. Because of scientific socialism, the task of the socialist did not become one of trying to develop the most perfect, harmonious, and rational system of society like the utopian socialist had tried to do. Under scientific socialism, the task was to analyze society, to analyze the history and economic basis of the class contradictions in society, and from this economic basis, to find the way to end all class conflict and bring about socialism and communism. The scientific clarity of Marxist socialist theory was so great that most sincere elements in the various socialist and communist organizations of the 1840s soon rejected the pre-Marxist and non-class varieties of socialism. Marx and Engels soon became ideological leaders within the socialist movement. When a new international organization was formed in 1847 uniting workers, intellectuals, and revolutionary socialist groups of various countries, they at once became its leaders. They suggested its name, the Communist League, and it was they who were appointed to draft its program. This program is the World Historic Communist Manifesto. The Communist Manifesto was not only the first program and general line of the international proletariat. It also laid down the basic principles of scientific socialism and the approach to all their types of socialism. With its quick translation into numerous languages, the manifesto soon spread the basic ideas of Marxist scientific socialism throughout Europe and then throughout the world. The basic principles outlined in this document have in essence remained firm for more than 150 years up to this day. Chapter 8. Marxist Political Economy as we have seen earlier, Marx developed his principles of political economy in continuation of and in opposition to the bourgeois political economy of the English economists. Most of Marx's earlier economic writings from 1844 to 1859 were in the form of a critique of bourgeois political economy. He countered the claims of the bourgeois political economists that capitalism was a permanent and universal system. He also proved that capitalism could exist only for a limited period and was destined to be overthrown and replaced by a new and higher social system. His later economic analysis, particularly the various volumes of his main work Capital, concentrated on discovering the economic laws of capitalism. The in-depth analysis of the relations of production in capitalist society, in their origin, development and decline, thus formed the main content of Marx's political economy. Bourgeois political economists always made their analysis in the form of a relation between things, i.e. the exchange of one commodity for another. 
Marx, however, showed that economics deals not with things, but with the relations between people, and in the last analysis, between classes. Since under capitalism it is the production of the commodities that dominates, Marx started his analysis with an analysis of the commodity. He pointed out that the exchange of commodities was not a mere exchange of things, but actually an expression of the relations between individual producers and society who have been linked by the market. Though commodity exchange has existed for thousands of years, it is only with the development of money and the birth of capitalism that it reaches its peak, lining up the entire economic lives of millions of individual producers throughout society into one whole. Capitalism even converts the labor power of the worker into a commodity that is bought and sold freely in the marketplace. The wage worker sells his labor power to the owner of the means of production, i.e. the capitalist. The worker spends one part of his working day producing the equivalent of his wage, i.e. producing what is necessary to cover the cost of maintaining himself and his family. The other part of their working day is spent producing for the maintenance and growth of the capitalist. The worker gets absolutely no payment from this production, which is for the capitalist. This additional value, which every worker produces over and above the value necessary to earn their wage and maintain themselves, Marx called surplus value. It is the source of profit and the source of wealth of the capitalist class. The discovery of the concept of surplus value exposed the nature of exploitation of the working class. It also brought out the source of antagonism between the proletariat and the bourgeoisie. This class antagonism was the principal manifestation of the fundamental contradiction of capitalist society, the contradiction between the social character of production and the private character of ownership. Engels referred to this discovery of surplus value as the second important discovery of Marx, after the discovery of the materialist conception of history. Lenin called the doctrine of surplus value the cornerstone of Marx's economic theory. Marx also analyzed in detail the periodic economic crises that repeatedly affected capitalism. He explained capitalist crises as another manifestation of the fundamental contradiction of capitalism. He thus exposed the falsehood of bourgeois economists, who at the time, propagated that capitalism could not face any crisis, as the operation of the market would solve all problems. They claimed that whatever was produced by the capitalists would automatically be sold in the marketplace. Marx, however, exposed that the nature of the working of capitalism itself would lead inevitably to crisis. He showed how capitalists and their desperate urge to earn more and more profits went on madly increasing production. At the same time, every capitalist tried to maintain a higher rate of profit by cutting the wage rates of his workers and throwing them into poverty. The working class composes the largest section in society, and the poverty of the working class automatically means the reduction of their capacity to buy goods available in the market. Thus, on the one hand, the capitalist class increases the production of goods being supplied to the market, and on the other hand, it reduces the buying capacity of a large section of the buyers in the very same market. This naturally leads to a severe contradiction between the expansion of production on the one hand and the contradiction of the market on the other hand. The result is the crisis of overproduction, where the market is flooded with unsold goods. Numerous capitalists are thrown into bankruptcy, locks, hundreds of thousands of workers, are thrown out of their jobs and forced into starvation. At the same, the shops are filled with goods that remained unused because there is no one to buy them. Marx further concluded that the anarchy of these crises of capitalism could only be resolved by resolving the fundamental contradiction of capitalism between the social character of production and the private character of ownership. This could only be done by overthrowing the capitalist system and establishing socialism and communism. 
thus giving a social character to the ownership of the means of production. Marx showed that the social force that would bring about this revolution had been created by capitalism itself. It was the proletariat class. It was the proletariat alone who had no interest in continuing the present system of exploitation and private ownership. It alone had the interest and capacity to establish socialism. Marx analyzed how every crisis intensified the contradictions of the capitalist system. He described the process with each crisis of the centralization of capital into the hands of a smaller and smaller handful of capitalists. This proceeded alongside the immense growth and the misery and discontent of the vast masses of workers. As the contradictions of capitalism sharpened, the revolutionary upheavals of the proletariat grew in strength, finally resulting in revolution, the confiscation of capital of the capitalist, and the building of a socialist society with a social character of ownership suited to the social character of production. In this way, Marx, starting from the economy's most basic unit, the commodity, brings out the nature of the economic laws governing capitalism. He thus exposes the scientific economic basis for the socialist revolution and the road to communism. Chapter 9. Marxism fuses its links with the working class. As we saw earlier, Marx and Engels were deeply involved in the revolutionary communist groups of the 1840s. They thus came to lead the Communist League, which was an international body uniting the revolutionaries of various European countries. They also drafted its program, the Communist Manifesto, which acquired world historic significance. However, at that time, in 1848, the influence of Marxism had yet to reach the vast working class masses. The influence of the Communist League was limited and consisted mainly of exiled workers and intellectuals. In fact, at that time, Marxism was just one of the many trends of socialism. The 1848 revolution, which spread insurrection throughout the European continent, was the first major historical event where Marxism proved itself in practice. Marx and Engels were in Brussels when the revolution first broke out in France. The Belgian government, fearing the spread of the revolution, immediately expelled Marx from Brussels and forced him to leave for Paris, where Engels soon joined him. However, as the revolutionary wave spread to Germany, both decided to move there immediately in order to directly participate in the revolutionary events. There they tried to consolidate the work of the Communist League and the workers' associations. They published a daily newspaper, the New Rheinische Zeitung, which served as an organ of propagation of the revolutionary line. The newspaper took a line in support of radical bourgeois democracy, as the completion of the bourgeois democratic revolution was then the main task in Germany. However, the paper simultaneously served as the organizer of the emerging revolutionary proletarian party in Germany. Marx and Engels even tried to form a mass workers' party by uniting the workers' associations of various provinces of Germany. The paper lasted for one year. With the collapse of the revolution in Germany and other parts of Europe, the paper was forced to close down and Marx was expelled by the Prussian king. He retreated to Paris but soon had to leave from there too because of persecution by the French authorities. Engels continued fighting in Germany as a soldier in the revolutionary armies until the very end. After military defeat, he escaped, and towards the end of 1849 joined Marx, who had by then settled in London. England then continued to be their center until the end of their lives. The defeat of the 1848 revolution spread confusion among the revolutionaries and proletarian activists throughout Europe. Most of the earlier dominant trends of socialism could not provide any proper understanding regarding the reasons for the course of events during the revolution. 
It was in such an atmosphere that Marx took up the task of explaining the social forces behind the initial victory and later defeat of the revolution. Since France was the center and principal starting point of both the upsurge and decline of the revolution, Marx concentrated his analysis on French events. This he did through his brilliant works, The Class Struggles in France, 1848-1850, and The 18th Brumaire of Louis Bonaparte. They were Marx's first attempts to explain current historical events by means of the materialist conception of history. He analyzed with complete clarity the class forces behind each of the major turns and twists in the revolution. He thus provided the class basis for revolutionary proletarian tactics. By exposing the role of various classes at various stages, he showed who were the friends and enemies of the revolution, and therefore the approach of the proletariat to each of them. In the following period, Marx continued his writings on all the major political events throughout the world. In all these writings, he presented a clear perspective from a proletarian viewpoint. This distinguished them from all other varieties of socialism. In the following period, Marx continued his writings on all the major political events throughout the world. In all these writings, he presented a clear perspective from a proletarian viewpoint. This distinguished them from all other varieties of socialism which proved incapable of providing real answers to the continuously changing world situation. It clearly established the superiority of Marxism over other brands of socialism as a practical tool for understanding and changing the world. Simultaneously, Marx and Engels worked energetically to unite the weak and fragmented organizations of the working class. The Communist League, which had its main center in Germany, faced severe repression from the Prussian police. Many of its members in Germany were put behind bars, and the organization itself was finally dissolved in November 1852. During the long period of reaction after the failure of the 1848 revolution, Marx and Engels tried continuously to reorganize and revive the working class movement. Besides writing and publishing their works extensively, they maintained constant contact with the working class organizations in various countries, particularly England, France, and Germany. Their constant attempt was to form an international organization of the working class and to set up separate parties of the proletariat in the industrially developed countries. The main work in this respect was done by Marx. He worked throughout this period under very difficult conditions. After having been driven out by the governments of various countries, even after Marx settled in London, he was under constant surveillance by the secret police, particularly of Prussia. Besides the political repression, Marx's economic situation was always very bad. Due to the poor and disorganized state of the revolutionary working class movement at that time, it was unable to support him as a full-timer. Thus, his only source of earnings was the small payment per article, which he got for writing for a large American newspaper, the New York Tribune. This was of course totally insufficient for Marx's large family. Thus, they faced constant poverty, debt, and even starvation. Many a time, household items had to be pawned to provide food. Marx had six children, but only three survived beyond childhood. When his baby daughter died, the burial had to be delayed for a few days until some money was collected for the burial. Marx himself faced constant serious illness, which he had to struggle against to complete his work. Throughout all these economic difficulties, the main support for the Marx family was Engels. After the failure of the 1848 revolution, Engels had been forced to take up a job in his father's Manchester firm. He worked there for 20 years, first as a clerk, and then for the last five years as a partner in the firm until 1869. During this period, he had a substantial income, with which he would regularly help Marx. Engels' help, however, was not merely economic. Though he did not have much spare time because of his job, he put in all efforts to continue study and help Marx. 
They corresponded very regularly and constantly exchanged ideas. Marx always consulted Engels on major questions, particularly on decisions regarding the international working class movement. Their efforts finally bore fruit in 1864 with the formation of the International Workingmen's Association, the first international. Marx soon became its leader and was primarily responsible for drawing up its first program and constitution. The International's program, however, did not contain the strong words of the Communist Manifesto. The First International, unlike the Communist League, was not an organization limited to small groups of revolutionaries. In fact, many of the sections of the International, especially those of England and France, represented organizations with a vast mass following of workers. However, most of these organizations did not have a clear and correct understanding. Though they were composed predominantly of workers, the level of consciousness was normally lower than that of the selected revolutionaries of the Communist League. The program and constitution thus had to be formulated keeping this in mind. The correct line had to be presented in a manner acceptable to the member organizations of the International. Marx, with his great ideological depth and practical organizational experience, was at that time the only person capable of thus drafting these documents, and was therefore given this task. In subsequent years, too, it was he who drafted all the most important documents of the First International. It was thus Marxism alone that could provide the ideological, political, and organizational perspective for the First International. Implementation of this perspective meant constant struggle against the various anarchist and opportunist trends that arose within the movement. Among other things, the anarchists opposed a strong organization, whereas the opportunists opposed resolute struggle. Fighting both deviations, Marx and Engels worked to build the international into a mass organization of struggle, uniting the workers in both Europe and the United States. In this, they largely succeeded leading at the same time the formation of independent proletarian parties in many of the industrialized countries of the world. By the time of the historic Paris Commune of 1871, Marxism had advanced very far from its position at the time of the 1848 revolution. Marxism no longer remained merely one of the trends of socialism. The earlier trends of the utopian socialism had been swept away by history, and it was Marxism alone that retained practical significance. Marxism also was no longer restricted to small groups, but had to become a mass phenomenon. Its influence extended to the proletarian movements in various industrialized countries. It provided the ideological leadership to independent proletarian parties. It headed a massive proletarian movement, which had begun to challenge the bourgeoisie. Marxism had fused its links with the vast working class masses. Chapter 10, The Lessons of the Paris Commune the Paris Commune was the first time in history when the proletariat seized power and attempted to set up its own rule. The Commune could not consolidate its rule and was crushed within a period of 72 days. However, its experience was of world historic significance. During its short existence, it had provided a glimpse of the new society. Through both its positive examples as well as its mistakes, it provided immensely valuable lessons for the working class of the world. Marx, in his role as leader of the First International, summarized the lessons of this great experience for the international proletariat. The context of the Paris Commune was framed by the Franco-German War of 1870-71. through 71. It started in July 1870 with the reactionary French Emperor Napoleon III ordering an attack on Prussia, which with other smaller provinces became Germany in January 1871, because he mistakenly thought that the Prussians were in a weak position. His armies were rapidly defeated and Napoleon III surrendered and was taken prisoner by the Prussians in September 1870. 
Napoleon III's surrender was followed by the setting up of a republic headed by a politician named Thiers. In March 1871, Thiers signed a peace treaty with the Germans. Paris, however, which had been surrounded by the Prussian army since September 1870, did not submit to Thiers. It was under the control of the Paris National Guard, which was composed mainly of workers. On March 18, 1871, Thiers sent his army to disarm the National Guard. There was a revolt in which two French army generals were shot dead, and the army was forced to retreat. Power had passed over into the hands of the National Guard, who, within a week, held elections and set up a council consisting of 92 members. The council, which had a large number of workers, became the organ of government. It introduced numerous progressive measures for the reorganization of social life and the administration of the city, and thus had the full support of the whole working people. The Paris Commune was, however, a government under constant attack. Fearing the strength of the working class, the German and French oppressors immediately joined hands to crush the Commune. Germany even directly helped the Thiers government by releasing a large section of the French army who had surrendered and been taken prisoner in 1870. The Thiers government, strengthened by the reinforcements, then launched a full-scale campaign to conquer Paris. The workers fought bravely, but they were no match for the well-equipped professional army. After many days of heroic fighting, resulting in thousands of martyrs, the commune was crushed on May 28, 1871. Even after the takeover, over 30,000 communards were butchered in cold blood. Over 45,000 were court-martialed, of whom many were executed and others sent to prison or into exile. It was as if the bourgeoisie was determined to teach an unforgettable lesson to the workers, lest they ever dream of seizing power again. The First International was at the peak of its popular appeal at the time of the Franco-Prussian War and the Paris Commune. It had a broad base among the workers and regularly provided guidance on political questions. When the Franco-Prussian War broke out, Marx immediately published a document in the name of the General Council of the First International. This document is one of the first applications of the Marxist tactical principles regarding war. He called for international solidarity of the workers while putting the blame for the war on the rulers of both France and Prussia. Due to the propaganda of the international, a strong spirit of internationalism existed among German and French workers. In fact, Babel and Wilhelm Liebknecht, two members of parliament and leaders of the German proletarian party, who were Marxist members of the international, were jailed by the Prussian government for voting in parliament against war credits. In the initial period of the war, Marx characterized it as a defensive war on the part of Germany because of the reactionary nature of the aggressive Napoleon III regime. He, however, predicted the fall of this reactionary ruler. When this took place, Marx immediately published a document that called on the German workers to oppose what had now become a German war of conquest. He called for peace with France and recognition of the newly formed republic. He characterized the republic as being led by the finance aristocracy and big bourgeoisie. However, he felt it would be premature to attempt to overthrow the republic and form a workers' government. In fact, Marx firmly opposed any attempt at insurrection in Paris. This was because the German enemy had already surrounded Paris and there was very little chance of any insurrection surviving under such circumstances. Despite Marx's advice, activists of various anarchist and conspiratorial trends, who had some following in Paris, made various attempts at organizing an uprising. When the insurrection actually took place, Marx, in spite of all his earlier opposition, declared full and militant support for the Commune. He immediately recognized its historic significance and sent hundreds of letters throughout the world trying to build up support. 
Through messengers, he kept in contact with the communards, sending advice to the internationalists in the commune. Consulting Angles, who was an expert in military matters, he also sent advice regarding the military defense of the commune. Though the leadership of the commune was in the hands of the members of other groups and trends, the Marxists within the commune made all attempts to strengthen its activities and defense. After the defeat of the commune, the International was the principal organization, which arranged for shelter and help to gain jobs for the communards who had to flee the brutal oppression of the French bourgeoisie. Marx, who immediately held the commune as an event of immense historic significance, made an in-depth analysis trying to draw lessons from its experience. This work, The Civil War in France, was written during the Commune, but could only be published two days after its fall. It served to propagate its achievements and build the correct perspective toward the Commune among revolutionaries and workers throughout the world. Firstly, Marx highlighted the major positive and revolutionary measures taken by the Commune, which he presented as the incubation of the new society. He pointed out the major political decisions as the separation of the church and state, abolition of subsidies to the church, replacement of the standing army by a people's militia, election and control of all judges and magistrates, upper salary limit for all government officials, and making them strictly responsible to the electorate, etc. The major socioeconomic measures were free and general education, abolition of night work and bakeries, cancellation of employer fines and workshops, closing of pawn shops, seizure of closed workshops which were to be run by the workers' cooperatives, relief to the unemployed, and rationed houses and assistance to debtors. All the above measures showed that although there was no clear direction to the commune, all its decisions had the clear stamp of the actions of the proletariat. Despite being faced constantly by the desperate question of its very survival, the commune through its actions provided the first glimpse of what type of society the coming proletarian revolution would bring. It provided the first experience of the proletariat and state power, what Marx and Engels referred to as the first dictatorship of the proletariat. The commune by its weaknesses also provided the valuable lessons for the future struggles of the proletariat. These were pointed out by Marx. A serious weakness of the commune was the lack of a clear and centralized leadership of a single proletarian party. From this, Marx concluded that for the success of the revolution, it was absolutely necessary to have the leadership of a strong, clear-sighted, and disciplined proletarian party. The other point, which Marx repeatedly stressed, was the need to smash the existing state machinery. In order to build the new workers' state, it was not possible to rely upon the existing state machinery of the bourgeoisie with its state officials who were totally committed to preserving the old social order. In fact, in order to build the workers' state, it was first necessary to smash the existing state apparatus and get rid of all the high-level officials associated with it. In the period of reaction and repression following the Commune, there was considerable confusion among the revolutionary forces as to how to assess the experiences and draw the correct conclusions. The anarchists, who had participated in large numbers in the Commune, were particularly at a loss. Marx's analysis gave a clear-cut position dispelling all types of confusion. Marx also had helped propagate the correct understanding regarding the Commune throughout the world. Following the Commune, the bourgeoisie portrayed Marx as the real leader of the Commune, and he was therefore even interviewed by the world press. Through these interviews, he thus was able to present the correct stand to various countries. Marxism again was providing the correct answers. Chapter 11 the spread of Marxism and the rise of opportunism. The period after the Paris Commune is one of reactionary offensive by the bourgeoisie on the working class movement. 
This had its impact on the First International. The French section was the worst hit, with the most of the members becoming refugees in other countries, with severe factional fights among them. The German labor movement also faced a setback with the long arrest of the main Marxist leaders, Bebel and Liebknecht, who had opposed the war and the annexation of parts of France. This meant that two of the most important sections in the international were handicapped. Simultaneously, there was a split in the English section, with some of the leaders leaving the international in opposition to the militant stand in support of the commune taken by Marx. This, coupled with the manipulations by the anarchists, weakened the international. Marx and Engels decided to transfer the headquarters of the international from London to New York. This decision was taken in the 1872 Congress of the International. The weakened international, however, could not revive and was finally dissolved in 1876. The dissolution of the First International, however, did not stop the onward march of Marxism and the setting up of new proletarian parties. The period after the Paris Commune saw a long, almost 35-year gap of peace, without any major wars between the big capitalist countries on the European continent. During this period, the labor movement in most industrialized countries expanded rapidly. Socialist parties, which had a basically proletarian composition, set up large and elaborate structures. Under their leadership grew trade unions, daily newspapers, worker cooperatives, etc. Working often under legal conditions, they participated quite successfully in the bourgeois parliaments. It was many of these parties who got together to set up the Second International in 1889. This formation of the Second International gave further encouragement to the growth of new proletarian socialist parties in various parts of the world. Until the end of their lives, Marx and Engels continued to play the role of ideological leaders and practical organizers of this growing working-class movement. They provided constant theoretical inputs to strengthen the foundations of the growing movement. Marx concentrated on further study of political economy and more in-depth study of capitalism. The first volume of Capital came out in 1867. After that, Marx continued to struggle against severe ill health to try to complete the later volumes of this work. However, it remained unfinished right up to his death on March 14, 1883. Engels, however, completed the monumental tasks of collecting Marx's notes, editing them and finally publishing the second and third volumes of Capital. Engels, in fact, also did substantial theoretical work after becoming a full-timer in 1869. Along with Marx and alone, he published various works on philosophy, socialist theory, evolution, origin of social and political institutions, etc. After the death of Marx, he played a central role in guiding and building the movements in various countries. Through regular correspondence, he performed the role of a center, which was otherwise non-existent throughout this period. This he did till his death on August 5, 1895. A large part of Marx and Engels' work was fighting the trends of opportunism that started gaining strength with the growth of the movement. One important trend was Lasallism, which arose first during the First International, but continued also in later years. Its originator, Ferdinand Lasalle, was the founder of the first working-class socialist party set up in 1863 in Germany. The main opportunist aspects of Lasalleism were discouraging workers' struggle for higher wages and making appeals to the state for aid to set up workers' cooperatives, which Lasalle saw as the main means of reforming society and gradually bringing about socialism. In order to fight the wrong understanding on wage struggles, Marx wrote the work Wages, Prices, and Profits, and presented it in the General Council of the First International in 1865. The fight against Lasallism continued in 1875 when Marx wrote the Critique of the Gotha Program. 
The Gotha program was the program drafted at the time of the unification of the Lasallist and Marxist proletarian parties of Germany into one party. At that time, the Marxists were so keen on unity that they made many compromises with the opportunist politics of Lasallism. Marx and his critique made a thorough criticism of the points that had opportunist politics. However, the critique was only given to a handful of the leading Marxist members of the German party. It was not circulated, and very few of its suggestions were brought into practice. However, in 1891, when a new party program was being drafted, Engels insisted on publishing the critique, despite the protests of some of the leading members of the party. This time, the Lasallus aspects did not appear in the new program. Other opportunist trends that appeared were similarly resolutely opposed by Marx and Engels as long as they were alive. After Engels' death, however, one of the biggest attacks on Marxism appeared from within the proletarian movement itself. Since direct opposition to Marxism was very difficult, this attack came in the form of an attempt to quote, revise, unquote, Marxism. This trend, which later came to be called revisionism, was initiated first by Bernstein, one of the leading members of the German party and also of the Second International. He first presented his views in 1898 through 99 within the German party. Bernstein proposed that because of changed conditions, it was necessary to change all the basic formulations made by Marx. He proposed that it was not necessary to have violent revolution to bring about socialism, and that reform of capitalist institutions would gradually bring about socialism. As opportunism had been growing in the working class movement, Bernstein's revisionism soon found supporters in various parties. However, at the same time, many genuine revolutionaries rallied around in the support of Marxism. The debate was taken up before the Congress of the Second International held in 1904. The Congress strongly condemned revisionism by a vote of 25 to 5, with 12 abstentions. There was also another compromise resolution, which did not so strongly condemn revisionism, that did pass because of a tie vote of 21 to 21. Thus, in both the resolutions, there was a very big section that supported or did not want to take a strong stand against revisionism. Though the Congress finally condemned revisionism, it was quite clear in 1904 that opportunism and revisionism had built a substantial base for itself at the highest levels of the international working class movement. The opposition to opportunism in many countries, however, was also strong. A particularly strong center was in Russia, where the Bolsheviks under the leadership of Lenin had already waged numerous struggles against Russian varieties of opportunism. Chapter 12, Marxism in Russia, Early Life of Lenin. Russia was one of the countries where Marxism and Marxist literature spread very early. In fact, the first translation of Marx's principal work, Capital or Das Kapital in German, was in Russian. An edition published in 1872, just five years after the original German edition, was an immediate success with good sales and numerous positive reviews in prestigious journals. Its impact was so great that by 1873-74, quotes from Capital already started appearing in the propaganda of radical student agitations in big Russian cities. The translation into Russian of other Marxist work was also taken up quite early by Russian revolutionaries attracted to Marxism. One such revolutionary was Vera Zasulich, a woman revolutionary known for her attempt to assassinate the governor of St. Petersburg. She started a correspondence with Marx in 1881, which she later continued with Engels after Marx's death. In 1883, she became part of the first Russian Marxist organization, the Emancipation of Labor Group, led by George Plekhanov. Plekhanov participated in the first Congress of the Second International in 1889, after which he met Engels for the first time. After this meeting, 
Plekhanov continued to maintain close links and take guidance from Engels. Plekhanov played the principal role in establishing Marxism in Russia. He translated and popularized many of Marx and Engels' works. While combating the anarchist, peasant socialist views of the Narodniks, he also made many theoretical contributions to Marxism. Russia at that time was under the tyrannical rule of the Tsar, against whom many revolutionaries and revolutionary groups had started activities. Many of these groups, however, had leaning towards anarchism and terrorism. Plekhanov and the Emancipation of Labor Group played the crucial role in converting considerable sections to Marxism. Lenin, who joined hands with the group at a later stage, was, however, the outstanding figure who advanced Marxism and the proletarian movement. Lenin was the party name of Vladimir Ilyich Ulyanov, who was born on April 22, 1870, in the city of Simbirsk, which was the capital of Simbirsk province. It was situated on the Volga, which is Russia's biggest river. Though it was a provincial capital, communication with the outside world was limited during Lenin's youth. There was no railway, and the main means of transport was via the steamers that traveled up and down the Volga. This, however, stopped during the long winter months when the river froze into ice and journeys had to be made on horseback. Lenin's father was a well-educated man who, through hard work, had risen from the level of a poor peasant to become a teacher, inspector of schools, and finally the director of elementary schools in Simbirsk province. He was also given the noble rank of civil counselor in 1874. He died in 1886. Lenin's mother was the daughter of a rural doctor. Though she did not go to school, she was educated at home and even learned many foreign languages, which she later taught her children. She died in 1916. They had eight children, of whom two died in early childhood and one in her teens. Lenin was the fourth child. All his brothers and sisters grew up to be revolutionaries. Lenin was, however, the most influenced by his elder brother Alexander. Alexander was a brilliant student and gold medalist of the University of St. Petersburg, then the capital of Russia. He was a member of secret revolutionary study circles of revolutionary youth in St. Petersburg and conducted political propaganda among the workers. He stood ideologically between the Narodniks and Marxism. In 1887, Alexander was arrested along with his elder sister Anna and other comrades for trying to assassinate the Tsar. Anna was later released and banned from St. Petersburg. Alexander, who was the leader of the group, was hanged on March 8, 1887, along with four of his comrades. Lenin was only 17 years old at the time and vowed to avenge his brother's martyrdom. From a very young age, Lenin was a model student with a very systematic method of study. Unlike other students, he never produced his assignments at the last minute. Rather, he prepared an early outline and draft, constantly making notes, additions, and changes before producing his final draft. He had a very high level of concentration and did not talk to anyone who disturbed him while studying. He was a great admirer of his elder brother and at a young age tried to imitate Alexander in everything he did. A month after his brother was hanged, Lenin, despite the severe tension and grief, had to sit for his school exit exams. He received a gold medal as the school's best student. Despite the gold medal, Lenin could not get admission in either the St. Petersburg University or Moscow University because he was the brother of a known revolutionary. He finally gained admission to the smaller University of Kazan. However, he was expelled within three months from the city of Kazan for participating in a demonstration against new regulations, limiting the autonomy of universities and the freedom of students. The police officer who escorted him to the city limits tried to convince the young Lenin that he was up against a wall. Lenin, however, replied that the wall was a rotten one which would crumble with one kick. The next year in 1888, Lenin was allowed to return to Kazan, but was not given readmission into the university. 
It is then that he started attending one of the secret Marxist study circles. During this period and later when the family moved to another province of Samara, Lenin spent a large amount of his time in reading and study. Besides reading the works of Russian revolutionaries, Lenin, at the age of 18, started reading many of Marx and Plekhanov's works. He started propagating his knowledge of Marxism, first to his eldest sister Anna, and then by organizing small discussion groups of his friends. He also took to swimming, skating, mountain climbing, and hunting. In the meantime, his mother made repeated attempts to get him readmitted to the university. He was, however, again refused at Kazan. He was also refused a foreign passport to go and study abroad. After many applications, in 1890, Lenin was finally accepted only as an external law student at St. Petersburg University. He could sit directly for the examinations without being allowed to attend lectures. Lenin was determined to complete his course at the same time as his former Kazan fellow students. He therefore studied on his own and completed the four-year course within a year. In the examinations held in 1891, he received the highest marks in all subjects and was given a first-class degree. In January 1892, he was accepted as a lawyer and started practice in the Samara Regional Court. Lenin, however, was least interested in his law practice. While taking his exams in St. Petersburg, he had developed Marxist contacts there and had gotten a supply of Marxist literature. In Samara, Lenin spent a large part of his time giving lectures in illegal study circles of workers and others. He also formed the first Marxist study circle of Samara. Samara was a center of the Narodniks, and Lenin concentrated his energies on fighting the Narodnik ideology of that time, which had moved to liberalism. At the same time, he had a great respect for the brave, selfless Narodnik revolutionaries of the 1870s, many of whom were residing in Samara after retiring from politics. Lenin was always eager to learn from them about their revolutionary work, their secrecy techniques, and about the behavior of revolutionaries during interrogation and trials. It was in Samara that Lenin started his first writings, which were circulated among the study circles. He also translated the Communist Manifesto into Russian. Lenin's activities and influence started spreading beyond Samara to other provinces of the Volga region. After developing well-formed views, Lenin now wanted to broaden the scope of his revolutionary work. With this aim, he moved in August 1893 to St. Petersburg, a major industrial center with a large proletariat. As a cover, he took up a job as an assistant lawyer to a senior barrister of St. Petersburg. He, however, did very little legal work and concentrated wholly on revolutionary activities. Lenin soon became a leading figure, bringing new life to the numerous secret study circles of St. Petersburg. He also influenced the Moscow circles. Besides lecturing in the circles, he was always interested in learning every minute detail of the workers' lives. In the circles, he convinced a big section of the revolutionaries to move from selective propaganda, propaganda in those days was understood as similar to our political education classes today, in small circles, to mass agitation among the broad masses of workers. It was during this period that he met his future wife, Krupskaya, who had already come into contact with Marxism and was teaching without payment at a night school for workers. Many of her worker students were part of a study circle conducted by Lenin. Lenin himself would always be eager to learn from her deep knowledge of the lives and work conditions of the St. Petersburg workers. When Lenin fell ill, she visited him and gradually their friendship grew into love. Meanwhile, Lenin continued to expand his contacts in many more Russian cities. In February 1895, a meeting of the groups in various main cities decided to send Lenin and another delegate from Moscow abroad to make contact with the Emancipation of Labor Group. Lenin's first visit to Europe lasted from April to September 1895. 
During this period, he met Plekhanov and Axelrod of the Emancipation of Labor Group and other leaders of the German and French working class organizations. He wanted keenly to meet Engels, but could not do so as Engels was on his deathbed. Upon his return to Russia, he united all the Marxist circles of St. Petersburg into one political organization called the League of Struggle for the Emancipation of the Working Class. The League immediately started agitation and organizing strikes in large factories of the city. It also made plans to publish an illegal magazine of the workers. This magazine, however, could not be published. Through the help of an informer, the secret police that had been keeping a close watch on Lenin finally managed to arrest him along with proof. He was picked up in December 1895, along with the manuscripts of the first issue of the illegal magazine, and was sent to jail. Even from jail, Lenin managed to keep close contact with his comrades outside. His mother and sister Anna brought him numerous books, and he sent letters in the books through a code that he had taught his sister. He also sent letters written in milk, which served as invisible ink that became visible later upon being warmed up. He used black bread as his ink pot so that he could swallow them as soon as any prison guard came nearby. Thus, from the jail, Lenin could even write pamphlets and direct strikes, which during 1896 were on an upswing throughout Russia. He came to be known as the real leader of the League. At the same time, he also started intense study and research on his first major theoretical work, the development of capitalism in Russia. While studying heavily from morning to night, Lenin kept up his fitness by daily regular exercises before going to bed. After one year in jail, Lenin was released but was immediately sentenced to three years' exile in Siberia, which he reached in May 1897. Krupskaya, in the meantime, had also been arrested. Lenin proposed marriage to her from Siberia. She replied simply, quote, If I'm to be a wife, so be it, unquote. She was allowed to join him in Siberia, which she reached in May 1898. Lenin spent most of his time in Siberia doing theoretical work. With Krupskaya's help, he translated an English book, Industrial Democracy, into Russian. He also completed his work on the development of capitalism in Russia, which was published legally in 1899. He also started his struggle against The Economist, an opportunist trend linked to Bernsteinian revisionism mentioned in the previous chapter. He also wrote extensively on what the program and immediate tasks of the Russian Revolution should be. When he came out of exile in early 1900, he immediately started work on those tasks.